Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. We're very glad you're here for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today, all brought to you by Gabby. Right now, totally free, no obligation, take just a couple minutes and stop overpaying on your car and home insurance. Check out the rates you can get for the exact same coverage you're getting right now at Gabby. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash martini. More on them a little bit later in the podcast. And Jim, let's start with the good martini. And it's not often that being down by 17 points is is a good martini, but compared to where things usually are in Miami-Dade County, it is a good thing. Uh, Right now, according to a uh, recent poll in Florida uh, conducted uh, by the Miami Herald, or at least paid for by the Miami Herald, uh, Donald Trump's losing to Joe Biden in Miami-Dade County, 55 to 38, 17-point spread. But he lost by basically 30 points to Hillary Clinton four years ago. And in a statewide poll, Trump is actually up among Hispanic voters, which I'm guessing most people would not have expected two months before Election Day. Now, other polls show things a little bit more widespread. But, uh, Jim, I have to wonder if this is the Maximo Alvarez approach and that powerful speech he gave on the first night of the convention or just uh, Cuban refugees or their descendants uh, seeing what's happening in the streets and simply coming to the same conclusion that Maxima Alvarez did, that we've seen this before, we don't want this, and we're not going to vote for it. So I guess the question is whether it's only true for Cubans or whether it's something we're going to see in other Hispanic communities, but uh, it's certainly eye-opening. And if it goes beyond Trump, which I suspect it does, that could make a big difference, not only this year, but beyond. Yeah. And for those who say, ah, okay, it's Cuban Americans. Cuban Americans always vote for Republicans. This is not surprising. Actually, it is a little surprising in part because back in 2012, I believe I was in Florida uh, right after, I guess it was right after election day. And I was reading a lot of the local coverage and it was a very big deal that Barack Obama, the incumbent president, won about 47% of the Cuban American vote. Mitt Romney got 50%. Now that is Still a bit more for the Republican, but it was 10 points before higher than the previous high water mark reached by Obama in 2008. And the increasing conventional wisdom was, huh, year, you know, now that we were more than f- approaching 50 years past the Bay of Pigs, uh, Cuban Americans in Florida were no longer these rock solid, reliable Republican voters. The lock had been picked by Obama. And Obama, in that first term, he hadn't gone to Cuba yet. But he had made indications that he wanted to reach out to Cuba. And the perception had been that this was going to be radioactive in the Cuban-American community. And it so far hadn't been. And there was a signal of, oh, okay, this has always been kind of the, the, the foundation of a whole bunch of Republican victories in the Sunshine State. I don't need to remind people how vital the state of Florida is to reaching 270 electoral votes. Trump won by a much more similar margin in uh, two, a couple of years ago. He won the state by 1%, so no one should have any illusions that this is an easy victory. And you look at this number, and you're like, okay, this is interesting. Now, has, has Trump been more hostile to Cuba? Yeah, he generally has been uh, what Cuban-Americans have wanted to see in terms of toughness against the uh, oppressive Cuban regime. But I think the Democratic Party much more openly flirting with socialism, speaking well of socialism. Bernie Sanders now having the second straight cycle where he came pretty darn close to winning the Democratic nomination. Yeah, he, you know, Biden wrapped it up pretty quickly, but 
you know, Sanders won the first three contests. And my suspicion is, is that there are still enough Cuban Americans who left Cuba, who have lived under a socialist regime, and maybe their kids were born here and didn't have the same uh, experiences, but they've certainly told their kids about it. Maybe their grandkids didn't live, grow up this way, but you're now seeing this community start galvanizing. Also, just generally, uh, look, let's not forget that for the first three years of the Trump presidency, the economy was doing pretty darn well. Latinos have a lot of small businesses in them. If your business is thriving, you're going to feel pretty good about the president. So I'm not surprised. I, it's also worth noting that these uh, polls lately, um, not everything has been great for Trump in Florida. The Marist College poll did have him even yesterday. It came out yesterday, and amongst that's amongst likely voters. When you put it to registered voters, he's actually ahead by a point. Uh, a couple other polls have him behind, so I don't think you can put this locked up for Trump. But, uh, you know, this is a good sign in a state where he definitely needs it. And if you are the Democrats, you probably have to feel a little bit nervous about this in that you had this demographic that you thought you were starting to chip away at and bring back into your pile. And now all of a sudden, it's like you're losing ground pretty fast. So uh, good news for Republicans, good news for Trump, and I think good news for the country if key demographics look at rhetoric like this on socialism say, nope, nope, I don't want any part of that whatsoever. Yeah, uh, hopefully it will get him to reverse course legitimately, but also get him to take a much closer look at the at the Republican Party. And I'll be very curious to see if it translates to places like Texas, which is uh, surprisingly close. And of course, Arizona is considered a battleground state this year. And whether that, that same angst that uh, you would see in the Cuban community applies elsewhere. We haven't necessarily seen that yet, but it'll be interesting to see. And if it does, you're going to see kids in cages ads going everywhere uh, from the Democrats here, <laughs> even though Obama started that. And it also reminds me, Jim, you mentioned Obama in Cuba. Remember when uh, he announced that he was uh, rolling back the sanctions and the biggest reason he thought he needed to do so was that the policy started before he was born? Like that was a point. And uh, this, this policy has been in place since before I was born. It's mm. time to change. So okay. is the Constitution, Mr. Pre <laughs> Actually, he felt the same way about the Constitution. That's right. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, let's talk about, you know, not only can uh, Florida... Uh, voters uh, take a look at uh, who they want to vote for and make their best choice. You can do that with Gabby as well, because when you've had the same car insurance or homeowner's insurance for years, you kind of get trapped into paying whatever the premiums are. And you don't think about it that much because you think it's a hassle to check it out uh, with other companies and, and maybe even make a change. But that makes it really easy to overpay and not even realize it. And so Gabby is fantastic in this sense because Gabby makes it simple. It's just one site. It's a couple minutes. You punch in your information, where you live, how old you are, that sort of thing, whether you're talking about homeowners or car insurance. You plug in about 10 different things, most of which you'll know off the top of your head. You link to your insurance policy. And within a couple of minutes, you know exactly what other companies are offering in terms of premiums for the exact same coverage. So stop overpaying for car and homeowners insurance and actually take the time to look at that lower rate for the exact same coverage you already have Thanks to Gabby. Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you an apples to apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers like Progressive, Nationwide, and Travelers. Just link your current insurance account and in just minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage that you currently have. Gabby customers save $825 per year on average. And if they can't find you savings, they'll let you know so you can relax knowing that you have the best rate that is out there. And they will never sell your information, so you'll never have to deal with annoying spam or robocalls. 
And that's really important because some of these prompts, you need to give somewhat personal information like your address or your age and things like that. So you don't want that information going all over the place. And it's great to know and comforting to know that Gabby does protect it. So I went through this. So when Gabby first became a sponsor, you plug in the information, you see the responses and the, and the comparative rates. And the good news for me was, is that uh, I was getting a good rate. I didn't need to make a change. But like Jim said, it's great to know that. And so you're not wondering if you're getting ripped off by your insurance company or if you just have a chance to get a better rate out there. And it's totally free to check your rate. There's no obligation whatsoever. So take just a few minutes right now and stop overpaying on your car and home insurance. Go to Gabby.com slash martini. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash martini. Again, Gabby.com slash martini. All right, Jim, we love to uh, beat up on the, the media, so we're going to do that, justifiably so, of course, over the last two martinis here. Uh, the Democratic ticket of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, you knew they were going to get uh, fairly favorable coverage from the mainstream media here in the home stretch of the campaign. But what we've seen in the past uh, week or so and even beyond is truly nauseating. First of all, there's really been virtually no pressure on Biden to have any press conferences. He has taken a few questions here and there in the last few days, including that really tough question from Ed O'Keefe of CBS News about why he's not angrier about what's uh, going on with Black Lives Matter and, and justice issues and so forth. And you know that, that really put Biden on his heels, I'm sure. Uh, you also had the situation in Kenosha where the, the lady at the, at the church uh, talking about Jacob Blake uh, said, I'm not going to read what's on the, on the paper. I'm going to tell you what I really think. No scrutiny of that whatsoever from the media. Uh, so on and on it goes. Uh, kid glove coverage. And my favorite one today is a tweet from Kathleen Decker over at the Washington Post, although she's talking about a story written by Chelsea James, who's a former Nationals beat writer for the uh, Post for baseball. Uh, the tweet says, in a presidential campaign, nearly every move is calculated but not Harris's footwear. She has white Chuck Taylor all-stars and also off-white, black, and even a still secret sequin pair, Jim. On Monday, the shoes went viral. So obviously this is the most important election in our lifetimes. It's life or death. Hey, Kamala's got cool shoes. <laughs> I mean, it's good to see she's, you know, she might get an endorsement deal out of this. So, you know, that's... <laughs> so th there, there's a bunch of problems here. High among them. I mean, the argument of a bunch of Democrat leaning members of the media might be, oh, look, Joe Biden has been in public life for longer than Jim and Greg have been alive. Uh, everybody already knows him. Everybody already knows what they think of him. There's really just not any more need for probing journalism and tough questions and stuff like that. Well, look, we know who Joe Biden has been. We don't know who Joe Biden is going to be as president, in part because his party is very divided. And Joe Biden has made very clear, he wants to bridge the divide. He does not want to be the guy who's telling one side of the party, no, you cannot have what you want. My colleague, David Harsani, has a good article. He says, there's a whole bunch of questions he'd like to see the media ask Joe Biden. Among them, do you still support what was called the Biden Amendment to the Foreign Assistance Act, which bans any American foreign aid from being used, or being used in research related to abortions? If not, why not? Um, he talked about his Catholic faith has inspired his run for the presidency. In that light, why does he want to reinstate Obama-era policies rolling back conscience protections for Catholic nuns? Uh, if, if there's a Biden administration, will it try to renew efforts to sue charitable orders like the Little Sisters of the Poor? an effort to force them to pay for birth control in violation of their religious beliefs. 
He promised to put Beto O'Rourke in charge of gun control efforts in the Biden administration. Could he elaborate on what that promise would be? What would that mean? Does he support gun confiscation? Because Beto O'Rourke is the man who said, hell yes, we're going to take your guns. Um, there's a long list of policy stuff that is more than just, why aren't you more mad at the president? Uh, the other thing is, I, I just wrote a corner post about this that I really feel like deserves a lot more scrutiny. Look, I realize there's a coronavirus pandemic going on. This is not ideal circumstances for barnstorming the country. Biden can't do big rallies, big events. Okay, fine. I get that. However, you know, there's lots of other different kinds of events. And we've seen uh, Joe Biden do a bunch of them. You know, his, his socially distanced one in the backyard in, uh, uh, I think it was Lancaster, Pennsylvania the other day. Look, it's September 9th. I go through the, the Biden schedule. As far as I can tell, he has done... Uh, a grand tour. He's been in four states this month, and he's given public remarks six times. He's in Michigan today. Yesterday, no public events. Monday, he had the events in Pennsylvania, the backyard one. And he did something with the AFL-CIO. Sunday, he had no public events. He went to church and visited the gravesite where his uh, graveyard, where his son, daughter, and first wife were buried. I'm not going to give the guy any grief about that. But he also didn't do anything on Saturday and Friday. He was only in Wilmington doing his virtual fundraiser and giving remarks on the the. Uh, uh, on the economy. The day before he was in Kenosha and the day before he only did, you know, was back in Wilmington again doing that. And the day before he had no public events and only a virtual fundraiser. Nine days into the month, six public remarks, four states. This is a really light schedule. And if you think I'm making it up, go back and look at Hillary Clinton's campaign schedule from the first week of September. She did seven events in five days in seven different states, or at least if she hit New York twice, but on separate occasions. That, you know, of course, now during all this, by the way, we later found out she had a walking pneumonia. And you might argue that, okay, that's not a strong endorsement. <laughs> you don't want to, maybe he shouldn't be doing all this, uh, you know, if you're, if you're doing, a, a, if you have a walking pneumonia, maybe you shouldn't be doing that crazy schedule. But Biden's doing about one event outside of, outside of, Del, of Delaware once every two days. And he rarely does more than one event per day. That's a really light schedule. And as if this wasn't, you know, even more bizarre, Early voting starts in Minnesota, Wyoming, and South Dakota in nine days. Okay? Election month, season, however you want to characterize it, starts pretty darn soon. Look, he's ahead. He thinks he doesn't need to campaign as much. Fine. But this means you don't know when you're going to get your next chance to ask questions for, from Joe Biden. So why aren't you angrier or, oh, isn't Trump terrible, are really wasted opportunities. Unless, of course, you just want to help the Biden campaign avoid controversy and you want very uh, simple, non-controversial answers. Um, look, I hope Joe Biden is in good health. I completely understand why he's not doing large events. And I don't want to see him shaking hands. I have no problem with him wearing a mask. But you do wonder about this guy and what is probably considered one of the most you know, challenging jobs on the planet and whether a guy who turns 78 right after the election is going to be able to handle this. And nothing he's doing in his schedule reassures people that he's going to be able to handle the burdens of this office if he's elected come November. What's the role of the media on this particular issue, Jim? Obviously, they should be asking him much tougher questions about his plans, about his nearly 50-year record, some of which is now being contradicted by his current positions. But in terms of should you be having more events, should you be uh, giving more access to the press? Obviously, if he were the Republican nominee and, and stiff-arming the press to this extent, we'd be hearing about it a lot. So what exactly is the proper role for the press to be demanding in terms of access to, to a nominee? Well, that's the thing is that if you're not in transit going from state to state, 
then presumably doing a daily availability and answering questions shouldn't be that hard. I mean, I'm kind of left wondering, what is Biden doing with all of his time? He does do interviews every now and then. Uh, we've seen some that didn't go so great. They could have the uh, National Association of Black and Latino Journalists. You ain't black with uh, Charlemagne the God. You know, it really seems like not just, oh, we're trying to keep him away from traveling. Okay, that, that's a coronavirus stuff. We're not doing big events. Okay, fine. But when he's not doing any question answering, what is he doing all day? He doesn't seem to be taping videos. He doesn't seem to be, I, I guess he's attending like one virtual fundraiser a day. You know, like what, you know, this does not feel like a campaign that is in its final two months. This feels like a campaign that is still in this leisurely pace of the spring. And it's just this bizarre acceptance of an extremely downshifted campaign. Uh, and I can't help but feeling it's kind of this, this, you know, if you're a Biden fan, it's a virtuous cycle. If you're a, a Trump fan or you just simply want to hold public officials accountable, it's a vicious cycle. He doesn't get a lot of scrutiny. So he remains ahead in the polls. So the Biden campaign is convinced that it's working. So they keep you know, avoiding the media. So he doesn't get much scrutiny. And the cycle just continues and continues. Joe Biden won the Democratic nomination because he's not Bernie Sanders. And at this point, if he wins, he's going to win because he's not Donald Trump. And I really don't think that's much of a mandate if uh, come January 20th. You know what this reminds me of, Jim? It reminds me of the press conference that Obama held after his first 100 days and Jeff Zeleny asked him what he found most enchanting about the office. Uh, that's about the level of scrutiny we're looking at right now. And I don't think it's going to change much if he actually ends up winning this thing. No, I don't think it will. All right, Jim, let's move on to our crazy martini now here and again to the media. This time we'll be focusing on Jamel Hill, formerly of ESPN, and now of The Atlantic. The Atlantic, of course, uh, at the middle of the political firestorm the past few days over its anonymous sourced reporting that uh, President Trump said disparaging things about American war dead and American soldiers. Uh, still nobody on the record. Uh, there's about 20 people now on the record disputing uh, what's being said in that column. But Jamel Hill not adding to the credibility of The Atlantic. She is uh, very upset about a trending Twitter topic from the actor James Woods, as well as country music singer Travis Tritt. James Woods started this whole thing. He suggested going into the Twitter search box, typing in hashtag resist, finding out who's using that on the left, and then blocking them so you never have to be bothered by uh, the first 20 people that show up on that list. So I don't know if that's a good use of your time or not, but Travis Tritt uh, sent out the exact same message, and they both blocked Jamel Hill. I don't know if she had replied to them or not, but uh, she did not respond well to them being blocked. So here's her tweet from Sunday evening. Quote, I've been blocked by both James Woods and Travis Tritt. Had anyone asked me about Travis Tritt before today, I would have said he was a nice guy based off meeting him at the Kentucky Derby a few years ago. Now I'm going to retell that story and make him seem like a huge bleep hole. So, Jim, when it comes to objective, fact-based reporting, I know she's a columnist, but when she's basically saying straight up, the next time I discuss this person, I'm going to completely change the story about him. Uh, I'm sure the Atlantic's loving that one. Yeah, this is basically, like, look, it's very important to me to score political points. Therefore, I will lie. Uh, by the way, I have, before we go any further, Greg, I just kind of have to observe. Did you think that in the year of our Lord 2020, amidst everything going on in our country, <laughs> in the world, pandemic, economic recession, tensions in the streets, violence, riots, distrust of the police, did you reach a point on September 9th where, you know, you're trying to analyze the dynamics of a controversy that involves James Woods, Travis Tritt, and Jamel Hill. 
seems like just we just picked random celebrities, threw them together. It's kind of like tomorrow there's going to be a giant controversy involving Patrick Ewing, Carrot Top, and Alf. <laughs> so, but yeah, so so Jamel Hill, you know, for those who remember all the backstory, um, was at ESPN for quite a while. They they gave her the six he, uh, the six p.m. Sports Center, which they said was going to shift sort of away from sports and into more cultural stuff. And, you know, I, I, amongst others, were not really, you know, Jamal Hill seemed like a, a, you know, a pleasant enough personality to have at the 6 p.m. Sports Center. But I kind of figured, Greg, the topic of the show would be right there in the title, Sports Center. Right. Uh, I mean, it wasn't, you know, Sports Center and sports and lots of other stuff center. It was, you know, it was Sports Center. And they tried to went in that direction. And lo and behold, the ratings were not good. And Jamel Hill was never a shrinking violent in her, politi- in her political views. She's an outspoken lefty. Fine. Go, go ahead. Be what you want to be. But just recognize that some of your audience that's come, tuning in for sports isn't going to want to you know, watch that, isn't going to be as interested in that. And I feel like this is something that not just ESPN, but basically every major sports institution has to recognize. There are some of us who deal with this in the other aspects of our lives. And when we watch sports, we want to watch the game. And this is a debate we've been having going back to Colin Kaepernick, going back to, you know, for, for, for years now. You, you, there are certain folks, I think it was uh, Jason Whitlock who made the argument that there were certain people who had gotten into sports journalism who weren't really into sports, who were really into politics, and who wanted to be political correspondents or social justice correspondents or, or to focus on these other issues. And for one reason or another, they ended up in the sports world. My attitude is, if you don't want to be a sports columnist, don't be a sports columnist. If you don't want to be in sports journalism, leave and go into regular broadcast news journalism. Because some of us just want to watch the sports stuff. And so Jamel Hill has shifted very largely away from sports journalism. She's much more focused on uh, cultural issues, racial issues. And that's fine. That's in a way what you're supposed to do. Notice how intense the transition has become. And then secondly, notice, to her, I, you know, she's really upset she's blocked by Travis Tripp. I, you know, could barely pick him out of a, of a lineup before this. I find people are blocking me all the time. And I hate to tell you this, that's, that's, part, of, that's part of Twitter. People are going to block you for reasons that strike you as really petty and unnecessary. Welcome to Twitter. Welcome to life. Now, here's the thing. Also, if you're outspoken about politics, you probably shouldn't be all that surprised that people who disagree with you are going to block you. You might feel like it's unfair, but you know what? You have your right to speak. They have their right to not listen to you. That's the world, Jamel Hill. You got to, you know, that's, that's the way it operates. It may stink, but you know what? I, and the other thing is I just, I can't get her my head around, Greg, why is she so bothered by the fact that she can't communicate to Travis Tritt? I don't know. I'm guessing they weren't the biggest buddies beforehand, even if they did have a nice run in at the Derby at one point. I mean, I guess is that like um, when Donna Brazil was chairwoman of the DNC, she blocked me and she and I had had plenty of pleasant exchanges in green rooms and stuff like that. And yeah, my nose was a little bit out of joint. I think what caused her to block me was some comment about passing along the debate questions or something like that. Okay, whatever it was, it was a very fair shot. And I've always kind of been a little, a little irked about that. So I, I guess I get where Jamel, but like now she's turned it into, well, I am so mad about this. I'm going to tell people he was a jerk, even though we had a perfectly pleasant interaction that time. In that scenario, Jamel, who's the jerk? And two, even if you're going to do this, why are you announcing it to the world on Twitter? What's the upside of, of announcing all that, you know? It's like a warning to everyone else. You better not block her or she'll start making up stories about you too. 
He uh, did tweet out in response saying, here's a perfect example of a blatant lie being crafted just because she disagrees politically. She's a contributing writer for The Atlantic. She is telling everyone that she is going to lie about how she felt about meeting me a few years ago. How they lie is so disappointing. So, Jim, that's one way to say it. You could also say it, uh, as Travis Tritt has in his day job, you could say that Jamel Hill's rant uh, is something you could chalk up to foolish pride. Uh, for some reason, she's feeling 10 feet tall and bulletproof. But if she writes this story and, and lies about him, she's going to be in a whole lot of T-R-O-U-B-L-E. And ultimately, uh, what I think Travis Tritt should say to her is, here's a quarter, call someone who cares. Oh, Greg, I got all of those references to country music. I totally didn't have to Google all of those things to make sure that those were Travis Tritt songs. Ha ha. Ah, uh, the glory days of 90s country, Jim. You're missing out. You're missing out. I, I was on the East Coast the entire time. It did not exist as well. <laughs> on that note, we're Team Tritt on this one. See you tomorrow, Jim. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus. Thanks so much for being with us today. Don't forget about our great uh, sponsors over at Gabby. Uh, just a couple of minutes. Check out and see if you can save money on your car or homeowner's insurance. Gabby.com slash martini. Also, please remember, if you haven't already, subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We would be very grateful for a five-star rating and a kind review. You can also get us on those home devices. Just say, play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And please join us on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.